Welcome to Power in the Wilderness, everyone. I'm Carl Jacob in New York City. And I'm Aaron Brown in northern Minnesota. And this is episode 9 of 10. Penultimate. Yeah. It's supposed to be exciting, right? The penultimate episode? Typically, it's the best episode in any 10 episodes. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> well, I predict great things for this episode. There's a lot going on in this episode, that's for sure. And as you might have suspected, this is a serial podcast. Episodes 1 through 8 have a lot of information that you need to know in order to understand what we're about to talk about in episode 9. And you can go back and listen to those episodes at powerinthewilderness.com. When we last left Vic, he was getting tired. World War I had transformed Hibbing and U.S. politics at large, and Vic was getting increasingly alienated by all sides of his coalition and losing political ground as a result. His last chance at the gubernatorial seat was also squashed after his eloquent and moving yet ill-timed speech at a Republican conference. On top of it all, Hibbing was finally literally moving, building by building, to the southern part of the city that Vic had annexed in his first year. Suddenly, Vic became a part of that move and formed an alliance with the new superintendent of the Oliver, Michael Godfrey. And together, they quietly architected what the new Hibbing was going to look like and what their legacy was going to be. Now, it's important to note that Godfrey was much more of a free agent than his predecessor, William West. The Oliver trusted him on relations with Vic, and he formed a good relationship with Vic. And as a result, Godfrey and Vic were able to negotiate deals that were out of the public eye compared to the previous high-profile cases between Vic and the mining companies. And while all this is going on, it's very noticeable in the papers that Vic is starting to really slow down. Mm -hmm. He appears to be drinking more, or maybe the drinking was hitting his body harder now, but either way, it was taking a toll on him and his ability to fight like he used to. Yeah, he was sick more often, and he isolated more often during this time out in the woods. And, you know, it's clear that he enjoyed not being in the paper in a scandal or in a political conflict as much as he used to. And when Vic and Godfrey struck the deal for Vic and his family to move to South Hibbing, there were almost certainly concessions that had to be made by Godfrey to force Vic to move and to keep him out of the court and the press with things that would hinder the smooth transition for the mining company. Vic got prime real estate for his building and for City Hall, yes, but it was also really good for the Oliver that he got that real estate in the middle of the town because of the symbolism of Vic moving. And Vic wanted there to be more for his legacy. And Godfrey, as we're learning, it seems was also keen on being a part of this legacy. Which legacy is that? This is the work of Italian artists. All of this beautiful workmanship is original. You're looking at an auditorium that seats. The seats are all gold. It's covered with professional. What are known as royal boxes. And the large side of the auditorium came from a Some of them are wide that was 65 feet from the second of crystal. Factories are truly irreplaceable. The castle in the woods. We know that Godfrey, the school board, and Vic Power were in some kind of talks to create 
this white elephant in the land of the buffalo, as it was called by the New York Times. So this is from the Masabi Ore, and the headline is, Board Decides to Begin Erection of School Now. Two new school buildings will be erected on the sites purchased by the Board of Education recently. The high school building will be erected on the Central Edition site, which was purchased recently by the Board, for $10,000. A 12-room grade school will be built on the Dyer and Lindbergh site. This site was purchased for $22,500. Work on the front section and the laboratory wings will commence this fall. It's in reference to the high school. Plans for the new building were drawn up by architect W.P. Bray of Duluth. The work on the grade school building will also begin this fall. The new high school building will be modern in every respect and will be one of the finest high school buildings in the state. I want to make a note about how they buried the lead there. Yeah. (laughs) This isn't on the front page, by the way, either. It's inside the newspaper. And this article is really symbolic for how the administration is treating the building of the new school. It's happening. People know it's happening, but they're not really making a big deal about it. They're not celebrating it. They're not pointing fingers at it because, you know, there's still some stink in the air from the graft trials. So I feel like any attention that they would have put on this would have immediately raised red flags. And it's interesting because Godfrey is representing the mines has the interest of the Oliver in him, but he also is playing a really long game with Vic. And that long game requires him basically to acquiesce so that Vic doesn't make a fuss over these things. So the other thing to note about this this article is that the amount of property that they're getting for the high school is it's much larger than the amount of property that they're getting for the grade school. And it's much, much cheaper. They're getting it for 10K instead of 22K. So this sweetheart sale of this land is something to note. The other thing is that the Oliver wanted this land tested before they sold it so that they knew they weren't selling off mineable ore. And Godfrey was in charge of testing the land by drilling the cores, the boreholes to, you know, pull out and sample stuff to make sure there was no usable ore under it. And he claimed that he had done over 20 test bores and that they were all analyzed and none of them contained usable ore under this site where the new school was going to go. But it was later discovered that Godfrey had in fact lied about the number of test bores made. And the truth is that he had only taken one single bore and it was unclear if they had even tested it (laughs) but by the time that this information had come to light they had already broken ground for the school they broke ground that fall so it was under construction and there was no way to turn it back and i love this part of the story because it really underscores this new kind of collusion that we're seeing between vic and godfrey who is representing the oliver at this time and how the school's fate was really a result of both of them playing ball, despite whatever the will of U.S. Steel was at the time. Yeah, it was, Godfrey was a plant inside the Oliver uh, for Vic's goals, and Vic was a plant inside the village government for Godfrey's goals. In a way, after fighting his predecessor, William West, Godfrey uh, and Vic have uh, formed this relationship where they can say, you know, we both want this great new high school in this great new town. Let's just do it. You need the ore in North Hibbing? Let's do it. There's a lot of inevitability in what was happening in North Hibbing, so Vic knows that too. And for Vic, this is the 
you know, it's about getting the best deal you can get at the time. And the deal was this high school and the city hall and the new downtown. And it's, it is really unclear because they did bury the details about the school build as much as they possibly could. It's very unclear to us who was making the decisions to bring in all of these crazy artisans and expensive supplies from all over the world. Well, there I mean, that's actually up for debate. Some people say that the marble was from Europe, but then other people say that the marble was from the US and that the people who said the marble was from Europe was saying so just to try to, you know, make it seem like they were spending more money than they needed to. What we do know is that when we pour over the papers and the school board minutes and city council minutes, there seems to be a concerted effort to really not mention what's going on, not mention the opulence, not mention how much it's costing. Actually, they do mention how much it costs, doesn't it? Well, they mention how much they think it'll cost. Right. (laughs) Which is not the same as what it's going to cost. Yeah. It ends up being a lot more money. And neither Vic nor Godfrey made a fuss about the opulence, but neither Vic nor Godfrey took claim that the opulence was a result of their decision-making either. And just as we saw in that article that you just read, in addition to that, there's also evidence of the school board denying claims of the opulence when asked directly, and even getting the local papers to really not write stories about it if they're compelled to. It kind of reminds me of like a co-parenting situation where neither parent wants to be the one to say no. (laughs) And they've got these architects and then they brought in these artisans to make things. And then they're like, do you want this or do you want something even better? Because I can do something even better. And there's nobody there to say, you know what? Hold it back. You know, it's just a high school. We don't need to go crazy. And then, but basically they're saying, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do the upgrade (laughs) at every level from the floors to the ceilings. Every decision is going up, not down. And that's one thing about this. And also the other thing adding to the mystery of how much this thing costs and what's going into it. You know, you think today of Hibbing, you see the high school surrounded by houses and there's a whole town around it. It's the middle of town. Well, that town didn't exist then. This was a muddy pit where there used to be a big mine dump. They had cleared away the mine dump, and it's just this big, muddy pit. And you have to have these special rail cars where they would haul in the supplies. The only people who were looking at it were the workers and the school board officials and the handful of public officials and mining company officials who went down there to check out the progress. And that was a limited group of people. So this thing is is literally emerging from the mud in the middle of nowhere. There's not a lot of people looking at it to see what they're doing. They can only see in the distance, well, that's a... Looks like a high school, I guess. Uh, that'll, that'll be nice. They don't know what's going inside of it. Hey, Aaron, let's talk about the city council just to for clarity about how the money is moving around because it's separate from the school board yeah. in this particular instance, and they both are able to tax the mines independently. Right. Though the city council does end up giving a lot of money to this project as it goes on. Right. 
But it's an, it's an important distinction that I think we should cover here. Right. There's different parts of the country where you see different ways to manage schools. Um, in, in Minnesota and, and even during this time, the school district is one local government entity and the city council or village council in this case is another. And normally the school board and the school district would be the ones in charge. And they are. They're, the, the, they're levying the money to educate the children of Hibbing. Uh, but in the construction of this high school, you have unique funding sources. You have the mine itself, which has committed to so much money to move the town. It, it all, you have the school district levying money to pay for some of the school. And you have the village paying for some of the infrastructure and, and support going into the building. And they all are mixing their funds in a way to make this thing happen, which is probably part of the reason why it's a little hard to say the, the exact decision-making process for adding, you know, the, the intricate artwork and the fineries of this place were being added because there were different people paying for different parts of it. So it gets kind of complicated. That's why, that's why you can do this. And this is why even when you, Carl, when you went to look at the old school board notes, found it kind of baffling it's not real clear and that's because yeah they're all they're all playing together on a big project with godfrey vic and the school board all contributing yeah and on the school board sits godfrey's brother tj that's right who is also very good friends with vic yeah so they have a guy on the board who's you know ready to force any things that they want to see happen as well for whatever that's worth. The school board's kind of a mix of merchants and religious conservatives ended up on the school board. And the school board kind of becomes a cover because everybody wants a nice school. It's the one thing the whole town can agree on. And so the school board doesn't want to complain about the high school because this is the spending they like. Nobody, you know, they might complain about Vic hiring 500 people to work on sewers over the winter to help them out. But they're not going to complain about this high school because this is where, keep in mind, it's an immigrant village. This is where all of these immigrants are going to become Americans. So there's this this agenda underneath all of it that is about Americanizing Hibbing, turning it into a model community. And so even the people who would normally fight on the spending side see the cultural goal of creating one Hibbing, culturally American Hibbing. And this is right on the heels of World War One, where that ideology is still fresh in everyone's mind right the whole keeping minnesota loyal and making sure you're proving your americanness so it's interesting how that can fall into this camp so as the town moves so does the feeling of allegiance this symbolic transfer of power that happened when the power family moved south is resonating and the divide of old Hibbingites into two camps the camp that is happy about what's happening or the camp that's not happy about what's happening along with the younger generation now becoming adults many of whom were just in world war one creates at least three camps of thought in the transitioning moving town there's a new allegiance forming to the new south Hibbing, and the pioneers are getting hung out to dry a little bit lost in the dust. You can see this kind of politics happening today where there's a fresh movement to glom onto the newer, younger ideas and let go of the old for a refresh. 
Despite how revolutionary the old leaders, in this case Victor Power, had been for the solidification of the society. A lot of these new people don't even remember Vic dramatically winning these impossible fights, and that camaraderie is just not resonant with them. You also read in Vic's tone here, he's starting to get a little peeved. He's not that old. He's still in his late 30s, early 40s. Right. He's our age, essentially. Right. And he's getting kind of an attitude of, well, don't you know what I did back in 1915? You know, you can see it in some of his comments when people are impatient with him or with the council. He's getting a little miffed that the, the, the younger people don't remember his accomplishments. And this is another thing you see in politics, age over age over age, is, is as the generational transition starts to happen, there's this kind of resentment, this generation gap that forms. And, and Vic is falling into the you know, the older camp, and certainly his older brother Walter is now considered an old man in his 50s, an old man. And so, uh, old man. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how it was then, you know. Vic is a, a crotchety 40 something. Yes, he's 41. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. But in 1919, one of these up and coming new kids is this lawyer named John Gannon. Now, he's from Wisconsin originally, but he moved up to the range as a young man to be with his uncle, who was Martin Hughes, the judge. The judge who heard most of Vic's arguments, by the way, in court over these previous uh, almost 20 years. And so Gannon knows who Vic is, and certainly his uncle does, and he comes as his uncle's protege and becomes a lawyer. He is very active in the range court cases as he's an up and coming lawyer. He, he, he might even remind you a little of a young Vic. He's hungry. He wants to make something of himself and he enlists and serves in the war with honor and some distinction. And he comes back and he, he survived this trauma and he wants to kind of remake the iron range and remake Hibbing where he decides to move. He was practicing in Nashwalk and decides to uh, move his practice to Hibbing. Nashwalk is about 10 miles more in the sticks at this point than the big city of Hibbing. That's right. So Gannon is a standout lawyer. Just like Vic, he's getting a lot of attention for winning these impossible cases. The cases that the person is dead to rights. They're going to go to jail. There's no way they're getting out of this. Well, Gannon is winning those cases too, just like Vic did early in his career. Gannon and Vic are very similar in, in terms of how their law career skyrocketed. But the primary difference between Gannon and Vic is that Gannon is an extremely handsome man. He's fit. He's tall. He's attractive. Yeah. He's a lady killer. He's got army bod right now. I mean, come on. Yeah, he's still single as he comes back from the war. Now, he does get married in due time, but you can't help but wonder what a middle-aged Vic looking at this young kid who wants to shake things up and, 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 you know, he's a little better looking and he's... uh, Certainly a much more athletic and vigorous man. Little had a little more energy because Vic Vic has been doing this for a while and he's not, you know, hitting the speaking circuit as hard as he used to or or hobnobbing with the community as much as he used to, just because, you know, you're busy and you, you get a little comfort in life and maybe you don't do as much of that. Well, Gannon is still the hungry young man here. So so that's part of the dynamic here between Vic and John Gannon. I was gonna say that Vic is getting fatter too, but as I look at the photos of him here. I'm not sure he was getting fatter or not. It's really hard to tell. He might have just had, you know, a general fat range that he was kind of always in. 
he was sick a lot, and I think what's happening is there's other physical things going on with him. Maybe not yeah. more weight, per se, but he's not as healthy as he used to be. He may have uh, actually been fatter as a younger man. He was a little more baby-faced and had a little more chubby cheeks and this sort of thing. He's looking a little bit gaunt, you know? Um, uh, he's a worn version of himself. Is this the period of time when he goes to the, the Kellogg health ranch actually uh it is just after that period uh, okay but uh the kellogg <laughs> brothers of course the we know them for the cereal now cornflakes they invented cereal and right they were really into colonics right if you actually yeah. go to their history they're really kind of weird what they've believed and were trying to prove scientifically at the time and actually cornflakes i believe were designed to keep people from masturbating if i if I remember the origin there. Yeah, yeah. No, um, they wanted to they wanted to squash sexual desire through what people ate for breakfast. So think about that every time you have cereal. Yeah. Ask yourself <laughs> if it works. Um <laughs> But but Vic would go he went to Battle Creek, Michigan to the big sanitarium they had there, which was a big health resort. It was used for a lot of different reasons, but you would detoxify from alcohol, from smoking and a lot of other vices that uh, Vic may have had. And they they tried to clean you up and get you healthy again. And, and Vic went there, and he went to places like that a lot, actually, usually at least once a year, probably at the urging of his wife, but also he, he may have enjoyed it uh, himself, too. And and he was trying to do something about his health in th with the medical science that was available to him at that time. Thank God for Percy. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, Vic's wife, if yeah. you uh, don't remember. Yeah, Percy Power. Now, let's get back to John Gannon. Mm -hmm. So, like we said, he's winning all these impossible cases. Well, there's one particular impossible case called the Owens case that brings a lot of attention to John Gannon. Right. If you'd like to hear past episodes of Power in the Wilderness, find out how you can become a supporter of our project, or see pictures or additional show notes, visit our website, powerinthewilderness.com. So James Owens is a surveyor for Stunts Township, and he is making his rounds, and he has his son with him, a early teenager, 12, 13, maybe 14 years of age, and his son's friend with him. They're accompanying James Owens on this as they're riding their horses through the woods. And they get to Owens's land where he's going to check in on these renters that he has, these two Italian immigrants. Now, here is where there are multiple versions of the story. It was reported initially that Owens got in some kind of altercation, a verbal altercation with the two renters, the altercation escalated and Owens pulled a gun and shot the two tenants on his land. And uh, later he would say that he was defending himself because the, the renters were going to hurt him because he was going to discover the moonshine still in the barn of this place. Well, here's the thing. James Owens may have had his own alcohol problem and may have well known there was a moonshine still on his land. And the altercation may have actually been about money or alcohol or something else related to the operation that was going on out there. This was certainly the implication if you read the newspapers and people thought oh, old James Owens might have gotten caught on this one. And he didn't just shoot them. 
He shot them in their cabin and then set the cabin on fire to presumably destroy the evidence of the shooting, maybe claiming that the two men died in a house fire. I, just, I can't believe this story. It's just so terrible. Well, one of these guys, he, he doesn't die. He's still alive in the cabin begging for his life. While he's on fire. <laughs> like While Owens, his landlord slash murderer, is attempted murderer, is lighting his home on fire around him. So he's screaming for his life. And actually, Owens' his own son, probably has a complicated life of his own with this situation, actually picks up the, the wounded man, an Italian immigrant, and puts him on his horse and actually hauls him back to town to the hospital for treatment. And he, he lives. He survives. Uh, the other man was killed and um, and died with the gunshot, and, and his body was destroyed in the fire. So the authorities arrive on the scene to a burning cabin, a burnt body, and a local official, essentially, a surveyor, saying that he had discovered a, a moonshine still in that barn and those guys were going to hurt me, so I, I had to shoot them. So it's a complicated story. And Owens is arrested for murder. And the Italian immigrant who lives actually testifies that no, Owens was in on this the whole time. He was there. He was threatening us. He wanted some booze. Uh, the son had testified and his own wife, James Owens' wife, had testified that he had been drinking that day and was kind of out of sorts, and, and in fact, the son couldn't explain his father's behavior. But the uh, lawyer, John Gannon, who is Owens's lawyer, actually makes this about the bootlegging immigrants, more so than the man who shot them. Remember that bootlegging right now is a thing, even though it's not prohibition yet in the rest of the country. Around here, it's illegal. It's illegal to make and sell booze now. Of course, there are a lot of bars and, you know, it's not really enforced unless there's a reason for it to be enforced. But still, it's technically illegal. And it's 1919, so national prohibition is, is we're on the doorstep of that. It's, it's, the implementation is starting to come into place. The law enforcement is keyed up for it. And so, and, and then the public is still supportive of prohibition as a, as a whole. Minnesota is a prohibition state. People support it. Even the Scandinavian immigrants and, and all of the church-going public thinks that prohibition is a way to solve problems, social problems. And so this is kind of a story where, you know, maybe if we just choose to believe Owens' side of the story, this is actually a story about putting down the booze problem. And it actually becomes a, a hero story of a man who is defending his kid and kid's friend from two bad men who would have killed them all. And so that's the story that Gannon pitches, and it works. In a miracle of miracles, Owens is, is acquitted of murder, despite the testimony of the living man who was shot, who is, who is then charged, of course, with moonshining and goes to jail. And this is a mirror image, culturally, of the dual case with Vic. Because in the dual case, Vic is representing the immigrants who get in the duel, and he gets the immigrant off for self-defense because of his situation and being so destitute, and the man is remorseful. In this trial, the immigrants are the ones who are getting persecuted, and the higher society man who has more power is the one who goes free in what would have otherwise been a murder rap. So... It really shines a light on how the tables have turned. And I would say that this case is really a milestone for the turning of those tables. Because John Gannon 
as we will get to later, keeps going. Hey, Aaron. Yeah, Carl? I think it's time to talk about Victor Johnson. Yeah, another Vic. Victor Johnson is Vic Powers' protege, who's been working in his offices for many, many years. And he recently came back from World War I, much like John Gannon. He actually became a lawyer under Vic's tutelage. You know, he was a, a clerk. He was just a, a helper in the office. And then he went to law school. Vic sponsored him through law school, helped him out. And then he goes off to war in World War I. Not only was he a skilled lawyer, but he also managed Vic's mayoral campaigns and was a really close ally. And when Johnson comes back from the war, like many who came back from the war, he was a changed man. And he and Vic started butting heads. It was widely thought that Johnson was being groomed by Vic to take over his practice, but that all fell apart when Johnson came back from Europe. Yeah, Johnson thought that Vic would name him as the next village attorney, but this is right after the Graf trials and a, a really difficult time in Vic's life, and Vic decided, for his own reasons, mostly loyalty and security probably, to name his brother Walter, his older brother, as the village attorney, even though Victor Johnson had just returned from World War One, and, and Vic, Victor Johnson took it very personally. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah. And so Johnson leaves, leaves Vic is not going to be around for Vic's upcoming election in 1921. And he starts his own practice. But he starts his own practice armed with many, many years of being at Vic's side, knowing how Vic thinks and operates and understanding some of Vic's secrets. And then the election of 1921 rolls around and Vic has to face it without Victor Johnson. <laughs> The election of 1921, Vic has to get back into office, and he faces his toughest challenge yet. This new shift in political lines, people don't know what they really want or how they're going to vote, so it's very tense. And the case of the disgruntled landowners who lost out by not taking the buyout deal in North Hibbing, which is now called the North 40 case, was in the courts at this time and all over the newspaper, and Vic's hands being in that deal... Eh, not so good for him. Certainly played a role in the election results. Vic does ultimately prevail and win his re-election in 1921, but it was so much closer than any of the other elections he's had up to this point. And the campaign was really messy. One of the things going on here is that the legislature had passed another law for the whole state that was really just targeted at Hibbing which they like to do in during this era under Governor Burnquist, who doesn't like Vic or Hibbing. Under uh, this new law, village employees can't serve as election judges. Previously, they had been the bulk of the election judges, and of course, a lot of them are Vic's friends and colleagues in the progressive administration. So previous elections were administered by a lot of people who knew Vic. Well, this one, the government uh, workers were not allowed to be election judges. They had to be appointed from the community, and they couldn't have any ties to the village. Well, that's a shorter list of people, and it's also a list of people who are a lot less friendly to Vic overall. So the thought was with different election judges, you know, election fraud stories have been following Vic for his whole career. It's one of the one of the things the minds use to try to discredit Vic is saying he can't possibly be destroying our candidates by these margins. It must be fraud. And so there's a widespread belief that maybe this is what gets Vic is when we change the rules so that his people can't be in the in the balloting, 
uh, maybe the results turn out different. Now, as you say, the result was closer than his previous two to one blowouts, but he still wins by 700 or 800 votes. He's still, it's a solid win. It's just not not nearly as overwhelming as the old one. But but that's probably not because of, at least mostly not because of any election fraud, not that any was ever proven, not that you could prove it the way elections were run back then, but more likely it's these other factors that were contributing to Vic's troubles. The larger group of disgruntled people upset with him for various reasons. The mining company people still don't necessarily fully trust Vic, even if he and Godfrey have a good relationship. Mining people, the mining executives in general, don't don't love him. And uh, and then all of these religious conservatives and um, nativists. You know, you you might call people who are now saying, "What what's with all these immigrants running around thinking they run the place?" You know, Vic's pals with those people. Uh, but a growing group of people in Hibbing are wary of the foreign labor and those involved with the bootlegging trade. Also in 1921, shortly after winning this election, Vic has to go back down to St. Paul. Remember the Lake Superior Taxpayers Association? I'm guessing they also had their hands in the law to prohibit administration employees from being election judges. Yes, their people were helping pass that law. Yes. So as evidenced by that, the Taxpayers Association this whole time has been chugging away, doing its work to try to crush Vic at every turn. And one of the things that they were doing is not giving up on the per capita tax limit, which is that Harrison bill that Vic defeated in... What was it? Episode four or five? I forget now. 1915. Yeah. In 1915, where he took a hundred men down and countered their lobbying effort and got the bill thrown out so that it wouldn't even get voted on the floor. Well, as we've already made very clear, Vic is not as full of energy as he used to be and doesn't have as huge of a coalition as he used to have. But nonetheless, there's a bill just like the Harrison bill now on the floor again. And Vic has to go down to do everything that he can to try to fight it. And he does. He goes down and he lobbies, but he's not able to get it thrown out. But he is able to convince the legislators to modify the bill in a way that is going to make a huge impact as what we might call one of Vic's last stands. Right. And by all accounts, he gives another of his great speeches to the to the legislative committee that's considering this. I, we don't have a transcript of it like we do the others, but it, it was considered a great speech. And, and what he does is he gets them, if you're going to pass this bill, he says, and you shouldn't, but if you are, you should set the limit at a rate that allows our village to stay functional. You can't cap our village below what it what it is. We have things to pay for. And so he gets the limit raised substantially. Instead of $25 per capita, he gets it raised to $100 per capita for the village. He gets the school board levy rate capped at $50 per capita, which is a little low, but they agree to allow that. And they agree, this is actually critical, they get the legislature to agree to not count incurred expenses for the high school that's already under construction. 
In other words, they're going to look the other way in how you assess taxes for that existing high school, and as long as you follow the per capita rules in the future when you're done. Well, this saves the high school. And at this time, the central part of the high school hadn't been built yet, the central wing. There's two wings on either side, the main, the main hallway area, which is four floors. And then this central addition is what's down there. Well, if you know Hibbing today, that's your gym, your swimming pool, and your auditorium. Three of the things that are most storied and, and interesting about the high school architecturally, and, and those things would not have been finished were it not for Vic's mostly solo effort this time to get them to allow that change. I love that story so much. <laughs> yeah, I know. It really is. They were they were on the verge of just halting construction because they they were not sure how they were going to pay for the auditorium, which, by the way, as we've previously discussed, is filled with expensive. Yeah, yeah, and this is before they had built any of the auditorium. So you talk about the chandeliers and the the various uh, murals and the seats and all of this fine fabric and and everything that went into that auditorium hadn't even hadn't even been laid a single brick yet. So uh, it could have easily been cut out of the project very easily uh, if it needed to be. Vic got it so that it didn't have to be. And that was all the difference. So, you know, we've been looking for this connection between Vic and this high school, because this is how we, this is how you came into the project and certainly something I've been aware of. How do you connect Vic and his work to the high school? Well, here it is. He uses all of his, summons all of his skill, and he manages at a time when he is politically disadvantaged. He's going to lose the fight to stop the bill, but he still manages to let them keep the high school. And so that's how we have the Hibbing High School Auditorium, 1921, the last stand of Vic versus the legislature. I just watched all three of the Matrix movies when I was recovering from my second COVID shot. Okay. And there's this scene that I'd forgot about, which is at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, where Neo, after being blinded by an electrocution to the eyes, is sitting blindfolded in front of this like mega machine, you know, leader thing. And he knows he's probably not going to survive, but his job is to go back into the Matrix and and kill Agent Smith. And by doing so, he kills himself. But he knows that if he doesn't do it, the rest of humanity is not going to reap the benefit from him having done it. And it just kind of feels like this. It's fresh in my mind. Maybe it's not a direct comparison yeah. enough, but... <laughs> it wasn't the one I was reaching for, but you know, there is something to that. I want to read what was published in the paper the day after he achieved this goal. Yeah. Per capita law not to affect building plans. New high school construction to continue. Cost to be met by extra levy. Passage of the per capita tax bill will in no way affect the construction of Hibbing's new high school building, now being completed at South Hibbing. The acceptance of the plans of the building means that further costs of construction will be listed as indebtedness, which must be met by extra levy according to the new provisions of the law. The total cost of Hibbing's new school building, which will house both high school and junior college, will be about $2.5 million. The building, when completed, will be the finest high school building in the United States, superseding the Washington Irving High School of New York as first in point of size. 
This is the first article that I know of that mentions, and again, buried at the bottom of the article, but mentions the cost of the building and the fact that it's going to be the most impressive high school in the country. I wonder, now this is just speculation, but it, connecting these dots here, I wonder if the per capita tax limit fight was ramping up enough that there was concern if they talked about the high school before he went down to try to fix the per capita tax bill was a concerted effort on Vic's part. Yeah, there's certainly, you know, the, the statewide press loves to talk about the richest village on earth, Hibbing, Minnesota. And the stories of opulence in Hibbing have gone way beyond the reality. Uh, they talk about paved alleys. They still haven't paved the alleys yet, even in this time. Uh, and of course, now now we say, well, alleys are paved, aren't they? Well, you know, this was the thing at the time. It was considered a luxury. And, and even though Hibbing was accused to have paved their alleys, they never actually did until later in the 20s. So, or actually in the new part of the town. So anyway, Vic is swatting these down left and right. And so I'm sure, you know, they don't want to let it out that they're putting some marble down or they're putting some really nice tile and some artisanal ceiling work and all this stuff. They don't want that stuff getting out because they, they, they know that it'll be used against them at the legislature. Uh, because this bill has come up every year since the tax bill, uh, tax fight of 1915. And so it's it's part of the ongoing fight. So there was certainly some strategy there. Uh, Vic was involved, but he had help from Michael Godfrey and the local newspapers and the school board. Any one of those people could have blown the whistle. And, and no one did. And no one did. Yeah, that's a rare moment of unity in Hibbing politics. Let's take a moment to remember what happened in Hibbing, the last time Vic came back from the per capita tax bill fight, there were people in the streets with torches. There were cars everywhere. There was a band playing. They wanted Vic to give a speech at the town hall. And the revelry went on all night long with cars honking. Fireworks? That's right. There were fireworks. And when Vic came back this time, he just walked off the train and went home. Yeah. No big party to meet him. It was just another day. Yeah. And he was coming home to a wife who was now becoming quite sick, Percy Power. And that is also coloring this period, um, in addition to the political turmoil he's faced, which is greater than any he had faced. His wife, who had had, had health issues over the years, was uh, in, in poor and declining health. And it is, in fact, not long at all after this that Percy Power passes away from what is what we would now call gallstones. At the time, it wasn't clear why she was dying, but it was it was evident afterward that it was from gallstones. So she passes away, and you could argue that Vic is never the same. Vic goes dark. He spends most of his time over the summer fishing with his brother Lamar, who comes to stay with him. And they're really holed up at the, uh, the resort that the family owns up on Swan Lake. Vic doesn't work for at least a month. And once he's back, he's only part-time for several months. And it's really clear that Percy's death is felt extremely hard. I mean, obviously, his wife just died. But man, to get this at this point, after everything else that's going on, I can't imagine that he's not super depressed. 
mean, he seems depressed. His drinking is likely ramping up even more. His family's clearly concerned because they're visiting him. They're trying to do activities with him that are out of the public eye. And Vic's absence is really felt in the village. Things are running a lot less smoothly with him gone. And the village is in a financial crisis. And it's around this time that that young lawyer, John Gannon, has that bootlegger case that was so famous. And the vacuum of news that's created by Vic's absence is being filled with the news of John Gannon. And to compound matters even more, the financial losses that the village is suffering right now are starting to become dire. Vic's absence and not addressing them is just making matters worse. And Vic's hands are now a little more tied because of this new law. Right, so the per capita law eliminates one of Victor Power's favorite tools, which is going out and selling a bunch of bonds, essentially, or using um, using warrants as cash, which was how we got through the 1915 uh, tax fight. A lot of that is limited now, which means he's got to figure out a way to pay for everything out of the current year's budget. Well, that's hard to do. And what happens is he's got to figure out how to cut costs. For the first time, Victor Power has to think about cutting his budget and and laying off workers. A lot of the programs he, he wants to do, he can't do anymore. Construction on new infrastructure slows down. He can't do it at the breakneck pace that he had so far. So he comes back with an idea. He comes back from his long grieving period with the idea, you know what, let's make Hibbing a city. You know, we talk about Hibbing being a city sometimes in this podcast, but but remember, it's technically a village. And that's a type of government that's just for very small places. Victor Power has grown the size of Hibbing exponentially since he, he's been mayor. And now he says, here's a solution. We incorporate as a city. We incorporate as a city that annexes all of Stunt's township, or most of it. And we become a much bigger city than we were even before. That will also give us the ability to levy new money that we couldn't before off the mines and elsewhere. And the rules are different for cities than they are for villages, which means that per capita bill will no longer apply to us. So it's a big, big idea and potentially fraught with all sorts of political opposition. But he pitches this as his big solution for here's how we get out of this jam. In the meantime, we have to cut the budget, but, but here's how we get out of it long term. And it's actually a little bit of a taste of like, oh, here's the Vic we remember, the guy with ideas and ways to combat every problem that the mines throw at him. Here he, here he goes again. But the town is even more divided now than it was during the last election. North and South are fighting each other over resentments over who got uh, the sweetheart deal to move and and who got left behind in the old village the the papers are trying to patch the differences by saying oh we're all one hibbing but the fact is there's a almost two mile gap between the old hibbing north hibbing and new south hibbing and that gap is costing a lot of people money and most of those people are in old north hibbing not in the new part of the village where business is picking up But both the people in North Hibbing and South Hibbing still vote for the mayor of the unified Hibbing or supposed unified Hibbing. Right. And the 1922 election is here. That's right. And Vic has a new opponent 
1922, Vic's opponent is John Gannon, the young, fit, handsome lawyer who's been rising to fame in the vacuum left by Vic. And Gannon's campaign is matching Vic's blow for blow. Now remember, Vic doesn't have his campaign manager anymore because he left when they were butting heads, but guess who is now running John Gannon's campaign? One Victor Johnson, former protege to Victor Power. His former junior partner is now John Gannon's right-hand man. And there are a lot of defectors from Vic's party who are supporting Gannon. And this race is close. So close that crazy things start happening and having leading up to this election. They are debating in the streets randomly. Yeah. Gannon and Power engage in a series of what you might call Lincoln-Douglas debates in different neighborhoods of Hibbing. Never been done in, in this town before. Thousands of people gather around to hear them. It's 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 crazy. Victor Power was known for his wild uh, campaign parades where the band and the torches and they'd go around town. Well, Gannon is doing the same thing, and they're having dueling parades going around different parts of Hibbing. It, the enthusiasm is like nothing ever seen before in this village. And Gannon's campaign slogan is called The Square Deal. Right. And his whole deal is that he wants the people to get a square deal from a government that has no corruption. And Gannon is kind of riding on the coattails of the graft trials and makes this whole idea of corruption central to his case that is also supported by what happened with the North 40 case when Vic was one of the last people to take the deal before the town moved south. Right. So this creates a magnificent PR storm against power. That he just hadn't seen before. Yeah, the punches are landing. He's taking punches, but they're landing and he's reeling. And Vic, who I think could have used some help from a campaign manager in this in this race, <laughs> uh, his slogan was the candidate for the square meal. So Gannon is the square deal candidate and Power's argument is he's for the square meal. If you're a working person and you want to have work and you want to have a life in this town, vote for Vic. You know, he's always made sure the people, the workers got food through the hard winters. And so he's like, I'm the square meal candidate. He's talking about a square deal, but I'm going to make sure everybody gets fed, which kind of feeds into the argument that Gannon was making, that, that Vic's always been about keeping his whole political family taken care of. When, when Hibbing was smaller, it was a lot like that. Now Hibbing is more diverse, certainly more contentious environment. And so Vic's appeal to the very basic nature of food <laughs> is a little, <laughs> a little out of place here. Election day comes and Vic loses the election. And in the same way that Warwick seemed relieved of it all, as he said, so did Vic at this point. And the day after the election, he writes in the paper, this is Victor. The returns from the election indicate the success of Mr. Gannon, to whom I extend congratulations and my sincere best wishes for a successful administration, one that will round out the best benefit of Hibbing and its people. I have always had a sincere affection for Hibbing and its people, and now, after nine years, I'm about to step down and relinquish the direction of municipal affairs to Mr. Gannon. Although but a private citizen in the future, I shall always use every best effort toward doing 
as I have striven to do as mayor, work hard for the greater progress of our little city. To those of my friends whose suffrage I owe my elections in the past, and to those who cast their ballots for me yesterday, I express my sincere appreciation, and I trust that my record during my terms in office is sufficient indication that I did not betray their trust. With the election now over, may all campaign animosities be forgotten, and may everyone get together in one common purpose, that of building a bigger, better Hibbing. Let us all remember that we are all merely humans, our allotted span on earth limited, as is our capacity for accomplishment. While Hibbing is an institution that will endure as long as life endures, a monument to our success or our failures. Those last lines are pretty amazing and also tell where Vic is at in terms of his own life and health and his thought process. You know, he, he knows he doesn't have a lot of time and he knows that easy come, easy go. You're up one day, then the next day you're down. And he's down now and he now sees perhaps with a full lens of, you know, how we only get so much time to change this world we live in. And, and he, he's probably feeling like he, he's now past his time where he could have influenced Hibbing the most. It's a very interesting and thoughtful uh, concession by Victor Power. And the thing he didn't include in this statement was the fact that now he was able to go on a real vacation. <laughs> yeah, he he does go, lay low again out at his lake place and farm for a while. But then he goes to Alaska. Right. He goes to the pioneer land of Alaska <laughs> for a essentially a woodland safari. He's hunting. He's trekking on horses through the woods with some guides and he is roughing it in the truest sense for a long period of time several months into the fall you would just love to know he probably goes there in in poor spirits uh you know i'm just going to get out of this town and let let this gannon guy deal with the problems for a while right i and think part of that was him saying thank you john you try to run this yourself yeah. just try yeah <laughs> Right. He's not even going to be there for advice or even to tell him where a file is yeah. located in the city hall. Like, I'm not even going to be there for that. You know, you, you're on your own. If you can't figure it out, you literally cannot reach me. I am in a place with no with no mail. Yeah. You know, there's just, you, know, you can't find me. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. And so Gannon's term, his first term in office, is marked by the complete absence of his, uh, his opponent. And um, he has to truly feel his way through. And it shows. Gannon has to figure things out without any help from the guy he beat. And Gannon steps into office with a lot of fanfare, kind of like Vic. Yeah. I'm not going to say it was the same as Vic's because it wasn't written about in the paper that way necessarily. There's a novelty to it. Vic's been mayor longer than any person in Hibbing history to this point. And so, oh, there's a new mayor. It's this kid, John Gannon, the young guy. To this day today, he still has been elected to the office more than any other person. Right. And almost following exactly in the footsteps of Victor Power, whether he knew it or not, the first thing he does is audit the books when his team takes office. But this time, eh, not much is revealed. And Gannon and his administration, their whole deal is they want to create more transparency in how the village business is conducted. They replace the key people with their allies. There's a new order. And um, really early on, John Gannon learns that Hibbing politics is a rough business. He had a really unique coalition in how he built his campaign. He's got 
union labor. He's got conservative Christians, prohibitionists and booze hunters. And, uh, and then all of the people who are mad about the North 40 case are kind of his three pillars of his coalition. And all of these baby birds want to get fed first. And so John Gannon's got to figure out which crumbs he's going to throw to which of his constituents first. Labor wants more representation on city boards. The religious conservatives want him to crack down on all the illegal booze that's in town. And people disgruntled with the move, with the North 40 case, want him to single-handedly convince the Oliver Iron Mining Company to buy them out so that everybody can, can now move and consolidate in South Hibbing all at once. That's a lot of different mouths to feed. Meantime, these debt issues that were there that Vic wanted to fix by making the village into a city are still there. And now they're Gannon's problem. And he just starts laying off village workers right away. He said he would, and then he did. And the people decided maybe that's not what we really <laughs> wanted. But, you know, Gannon gives it a concerted effort. And construction on the New South Hibbing continues at a crazy pace, stuff getting built everywhere. The high school's getting bigger and bigger. They're starting that central part with the auditorium in it. And John Gannon, who's now the mayor, decides he's going to build his own house in South Hibbing because that's the center of power. And at that same time, he also gets married. And he's not slacking at the job. He's genuinely, I think his heart is in the right place, but I don't think he really understands who what he's up against. And that can really be seen in this next story because he has to do these budget cuts and he's telling the village that the government can no longer afford to give as much charity to the unemployed, to the widows, and to other poor people like Powers Administration was. However, he was going to solve the problem by personally petitioning U.S. Steel to contribute to a fund that would help these people so that the government wouldn't have to do it. Gannon really believes that if he just is honest and forthright with everybody, whether it's the mining company or the guy on the street, they're all going to respond to that energy and that everything's going to turn out great. Gannon would receive an ugly education at the hands of the U.S. Steel Corporation. Even though Gannon had removed U.S. Steel's greatest enemy when he took office and got Vic Power out, they cut him no slack. But I worked on some of the service and I gave all of my money to the government. I don't know quite how I got spent, but the banks are coming from my deed board. Man at the mill can't see. Wilderness is produced by Aaron Brown and Carl Jacob and edited by me, Carl Jacob. The show is a special production of KAXE, KBXE, Northern Community Radio, and is made possible in part by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And a special thanks to Sam Miltich and Charlie Parr, whose music is featured in this episode. We'll see you guys next time on Power in the Wilderness.